Not bad, huh? It's a luxury soaking tub for successful businessmen. <laughs> Enjoy. This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 265, for the week of August 26, 2019. I am industrial can of nacho cheese, David T. Cole, and I'm here with alligator steak, Sarah D. Bunting. I was just going to offer you that crock. Miss Zuber, 1982, Tara Ariano. They're still talking about my talent. And pioneer of the Lundamentals, Jeb Lund. Of course, namaste. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to a, another episode of Extra Hot Great. Before we get into the meat of it, a little site business. Next week, there is no new episode. And then there's like a little asterisk next to that statement. Uh, we are obligated to put it on episode because of all the uh, mega corporations that like to advertise on Extra Hot Great uh, <laughs> demand airtime, uh, but we will not be around. So what we're going to do, uh, two stitch together Patreon episodes as our next full episode. We are obligated to put it on an episode because of the mega corporations that demand to advertise on Extra Hot Great. <laughs> so what we're going to do is stitch those two together and release that as episode 266. And then... Well... For 267, which will be dropping on September 11th, we three co-hosts could not decide on what our lead topic should be. So for the first time ever, we are reaching out to you, the listeners, to go to our Twitter, which is twitter.com slash extra hot podcast. And there will be a poll there by the time you hear this where you can vote on which topic you want us to do. So here are your choices. Number one, the deuce on HBO, quote, Trace the beginnings of the billion-dollar pornography industry from its start in 1970s Times Square in the gritty drama from creators George Pelicanos and David Simon. Number two, The Spy on Netflix. This drama tells the astonishing true story of Israel's most prominent spy, Eli Cohen, who infiltrated the Syrian government in the 1960s. Finally, number three, a very Brady renovation on HGTV. Quote, the six remaining members of the iconic sitcom join forces with HGTV stars to renovate, renovate the iconic real-life Brady Bunch home in Los Angeles. So once again, twitter.com slash extra hot podcast. Vote in the poll. You program our next episode. Take this responsibility extremely <laughs> seriously because it is. And now to today's topic. Uh, we are welcoming back our old friend, Jeb Lund. Hello, Jeb. Hi, Jeb. Yay! Nice to be back. We are going to be talking about the new Showtime dramedy uh, on Becoming a God in Central Florida. And for those who haven't watched it, here's a brief plot summary. In 1992, Orlando-adjacent Crystal and Travis Stubbs, played by Kirsten Dunst and Alexander Skarsgård, are two years into their journey with FAM, Founders American Merchandise, a multi-level marketing program that is not Amway. Travis's upline, Cody, Theodore Pellerin, has convinced Travis that he will be able to be his own fam boss full-time if he just works harder and commits himself more intently to fam. Crystal, who knows exactly what fam is, doesn't want Travis to give up his job in insurance sales and the benefits that come with it to spend even more time on the road recruiting instead of sleeping. Crystal tells Travis that if he quits his job, she will leave him. He decides to listen to Cody instead with immediate and disastrous consequences. This forces Crystal to swallow her antagonism toward fam in order to survive. And the show airs Sunday nights on Showtime. 
Before we get into the specifics of the plot, let's go around for some general first impressions. Jeb, what are your thoughts on the show as a Floridian or not? <laughs> your choice. Oh, oh, terrific. All right. Um, first of all, sidewalks. No, they wouldn't be there. Uh, clearly not the hinterland of Orlando. Nobody's going to throw out money for sidewalks. Um, the vibe, though, like, you know, the the period vibe of the the houses reminded me a lot of, you know, visiting friends in sort of mid-tier suburban neighborhoods. So aesthetically, it worked. I think, you know, wherever that theme park is, it's a clone stamp of a couple of different ones I've I've been to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the, the general, like, just heat <laughs> and, like, discomfort of everything also seemed fairly good. Um, but uh, I don't know, like, I, I don't, I don't want to get into it too much, but, like, I didn't enjoy the first two episodes nearly as much as I enjoyed the rest of the series. And like, I can't, I don't really want to talk about that because I don't want to give too much of it away. Right. Okay. Sarah, what do you think? Um, basically agree. Uh, I like, I enjoyed the time I spent with these people in the first two episodes. I laughed, but it's real slow in the early going and it sounds like I should keep going with it, but you know, the log line is sort of like you're promised, you're promised something that it has not started happening in the first two episodes. Like she's, you know, going to be leveraging fam to her own advantage. Like you need to not be spending two full 48 minute episodes scene setting. Like the scene setting was skillful. I like Dunst in this role. I like that. She looks like a civilian, basically, mm-hmm. and is allowed to have like a real body. Um, I, you know, I like that she's inhabiting it. Um, but, you know, I just feel like there was a lot of narrative throat clearing and perhaps production design navel gazing, but I don't know if I'm in the minority on that. I'm wondering if this show is basically going to be Breaking Bad meets Fargo, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know if the characters are quirky enough to pull off a Fargo-esque take on everything. I feel like the trajectory is there. I do agree with Sarah that I kind of wanted it to get wherever it's going quicker. I do have to give huge props to the show for casting, and I'm just going to spoiler ho this for right now. <laughs> Uh, spoilers ahoy fun ahoy that they cast this very big name to play the husband and it pays off because i didn't have any notion that he was going to bite the bullet in the first episode and in the manner in which he bites the bullet in the first episode (laughs) was kind of spectacular what happens is the husband is driving back and forth trying to recruit people into his fam's you know his level of fam uh, which is like amway he drives into a little marsh area and there's another character that's sort of above him in the scheme and he runs down there to make sure he's okay the husband swims up is kind of laughing because he just cheated death and just as he's wading out of the water the alligator comes out of nowhere and (laughs) just drags him down to the giant pool of blood that leaves no mystery as to (laughs) whether he's alive or dead yes as long as we're still in the spoiler verse i i just want to add like in florida if an alligator is involved in an attack on a person that thing is dead by sundown yeah (laughs) okay there's nothing that she could have sought vengeance against yeah or like just to satisfy herself like you know, animal controls on that. Yeah. Alligators and people who shoot cops, just like they don't survive until sunrise. So. Absolutely not. Yeah. 
Well, and also to cast this particular actor and then try not entirely successfully to frump him up with a mullet wig and like mm-hmm. he has maxi pads under his armpits in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> n- nice try. Still would because yeah. it's Skarsgård, but yeah. And the tuxedo that's two sizes too big. Yeah. Very David Silver. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting choice to, you know, Janet Lee, somebody who's that big a name. You're right. At the heart of the show, of the mechanics of the show, and most of the characters are somehow attached to this mid-level marketing scheme known as FAM. Multi-level, and, not mid-level. Oh, sorry. Uh, yes, thank you. Multi-level marketing. Um, and do we find that interesting to itself, or is that something we all know about, and that's just sort of in the background for you? There's there's this weird kind of like wobbly valence to the tone of this show that I'm not sure I like. And it's something that they can address in like upcoming seasons. And I think we would be completely fine. It's not a deal breaker. And like, if you enjoy the show, you're fine. But like, America is really good at pathologizing poverty. And we can't do that with minorities anymore, because that's obviously bad. But white trash, and even the, you know, the expression white trash is fair game. And I'm not sure how sympathetic this is like you know you crystal is supposed to be your your heroine but uh you know you start out this show with a mulleted alcoholic moron husband who's punching up above his class weight in this white collar safe job that he doesn't seem to appreciate because he wants to you know take part in a get get rich quick scheme and he's married to a former um let's say sexual assault victim beauty queen uh, who smokes cigarettes while driving her baby around on an ATV and works in a water park and thinks that water jazzercise is like a groundbreaking idea in the mid nineties. And they live in Orlando and their daughter's name is destiny with two E's. Yeah. And it's like, whose side are you on? And I'm not, and I was thinking about this because my friend Karen Geyer has a podcast called on belief, which is just all about cults. And they did a really good episode on uh, multi-level marketing with, um, Sasha Zazi and Katie Young of um, a podcast called Sounds Like MLM, but okay. And, <laughs> Great and name. like the, yeah, no, it's terrific. Um, I mean, the problem is like cults work really well on intelligent and economically secure people. You know, it's a lot of times what they're preying on is a, you know, an absence of guidance, uh, guidance or spiritual fulfillment or just like, you know, a, a kind of middle class ennui, but they're not coming from like real deprivation. And, like every now and again, there's this whole kind of like, look at this tacky rube with to how this show treats Crystal and her peers. And it makes me question like the amount of, of sympathy and also weirdly, like how much better the show might have been and more challenging and potentially more alienating if it's centered on Julie Benz's character right. and her husband, who we later find out was like a veterinarian and interrogating how they could be preyed upon by using their own alienation and greed and dissatisfaction. And we could have made all those points without going on yokel safari. <laughs> yokel safari. Yeah. yeah great. Term. I mean, this is, this is what is like slowly turned me off claws as well, that it's like, I feel bad watching this. And I, I appreciate that this show is trying to do the breaking bad thing with, you know, a female antihero. Cause that's something we haven't seen that much. But if we know that, and again, I only watched the first two episodes, but if the, the likelihood of how you get ahead in this scheme is you exploit people below you, like, it's not going to be fun to watch. <laughs> like, this is, this is not what I want for her. This is not the journey that I want her to be on. But at the same time, I also feel like the first two episodes established, like, 
she has tried to to get a legit job. She tried to secure her job at the water park. She tried to get a sales job at the ATV store, which it seemed like she would probably actually be good at. And instead, what her options are, are like her option is this. And, you know, I I don't know. I I know this happens. I don't know if I want to live in this world, though. Sarah, what do you think? There were moments where I had this in my notes where the um, the sort of uh, like not fun house, um, but like uh, treating poor people like they're zoo animals um, writing uh, Dunst often um, like canceled that out with mm-hmm. what I thought was a not condescending um, or cartoony portrayal of this person. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it felt lived in and I'm, I'm interested in her, but Tara, your point with claws is well taken. Like that one also tonally has always been a little, um, ambivalent about how it, you know, how it sees these people and mm-hmm. can't decide whether to glorify them or make fun of them. And sometimes tries to do it in the same scene and it doesn't, it doesn't work. And this show between, between moving fairly slowly in the first two episodes and also sort of siloing like, um, Theodore Pellerin is really good. He's in, amazing yeah. in this. And, um, he just has these like flickers of panic where you can tell this character is like a stiff breeze away from throwing up all over his whole life <laughs> yep. um, because he's just so stressed out. And um, I think this is an amazing role for Ted Levine also. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. It was like, you know, he's got the big rings on and he he's perfect for these kind of tapes based um, cults basically. But yeah, like not every show that calls itself a dramedy is actually a dramedy. Sometimes it just can't decide how it feels about its characters and won't commit. And that's not exactly the same thing. For me, the norm of the satire is Ernie, uh, the Mel Rodriguez character who it's like is is portrayed as extremely kind has every like specifically says in so many words i have everything i want there's nothing else i yearn for when crystal is trying to like right get him in on fam and he you know buys all of travis's stuff from her sad garage sale so that he can bury it so she doesn't have to see it anymore like ernie is decency personified and then the thought that like oh his path is going to be getting embroiled in this scheme and it ruining his life. And like, I especially don't want to watch that. So this is, this is why I'm, I'm definitely going to see at least one more to see if like, if this, if her scam is going to be scamming the upline or scamming the downline, cause it makes a big difference to me in terms of what I want to watch. I, I feel you there. Cause the thing I hate about so much prestige drama is that it's just basically like unhappiness pornography. It's like, mm-hmm. let's take a three dimensional character, surround him or her with like, things they can bounce off of that we're never going to realize as three-dimensional because they kind of don't matter. And like, yeah. let's just introduce Job-like suffering. And I really dreaded that from the first two. So I just want to say, like, have some optimism. And I think, like, the I don't want to spoil it too much, but, like, the anti... I was worried about v- very much that same thing. And, like, a lot of that kind of drained away. And also, like, Pellerin just is, like, so fun for all of it. Like you said, he's just so... 
antic and delightful and like he gets more dimensions and so i don't know i like we we kept going because i was like i need to see if this is an authentic florida document and then right. i realized <laughs> i was having a really good time so yeah i i love the casting on him playing cody and and the scenes between him and josh fadham or fadham who is from well, I was going to say Breaking Bad. He's from the he's from Better Call Saul. The two of them in like doing mm-hmm. dueling MLM strategies and like trying to recruit <laughs> each other is like the casting on both of them is like the differences between them are so brilliant. Where it's like you really get the, <laughs> the sense of like how these different philosophies are clashing yet complementary. I just loved every scene that the two of them yeah. had together and the table filling up with all their cups as their mouths got bluer <laughs> and bluer. <laughs> Just sort of a nod to Zodiac, which I enjoyed. It was great. It was like the uh, Spider-Man pointing at himself meme as a scene. It was fantastic. (laughs) I was thinking of it as like spy versus spy, but they're just armed with like pamphlets. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, a lot of times when we're watching something, I will knowingly tell Dave that the real villain is secretly capitalism and he pretends that this isn't annoying. But I don't think that we've talked about a series on this podcast before where this has been clearer than in this one. Oh, yeah. No, especially with what happens to, uh, to, to Ernie, like, you know, the, the idea that he starts out with perfect satisfaction and then somebody introduces the temptation of like, why wouldn't you try greed? Yeah. But the, but the, like the actual pyramid scheme model itself, which I know it's not a pyramid scheme, it's a multi-level marketing scheme. Pyramid schemes are illegal. I listen to the dream. I know all the lingo, but, um, how it magnifies the conditions of capitalism, like t- where your labor enriches the people that are up the chain from you, you prosper by exploiting as many people below you as you can. And the promises about how rich you can get if you work harder are literally mathematically impossible to achieve or never mind sustain. So, I mean, I appreciate any show that tries to convey that to an audience because it's important to know. Yeah. Well, and he, it does it in a processy way also. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, Pinko cop and processy cop are both <laughs> satisfied. You know, yeah. I, I I felt like like the MLM stuff is generally well known, but I thought if there was ever a time for a Sherlock esque graphics over the screen explainer that lasts like twenty seconds, oh, that yeah. was the moment. Just to like the first time the MLM stuff comes up, and just do a really quick explainer of like how it's set up and why it screws people over would have been great, especially given the opening credits and how you know mm-hmm. uh, redline crazy ish they they were were going. Oh, I, I did I did have like two like just sort of uh, uh, well actually I guess like three quick like just bullet point notes. Um, I did I, I swung by uh, IMDb to look at. Uh, Pellerin's uh, uh, page and see what he's done. Also, I like, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Like I, cause he's Quebecois and I was like, Oh, is that Theodore Pellerin? Like, yeah. And, um, but anyway, like, you know, he, he, he has credits for endorphin boost squat strangers, Genesis and incel, which made me kind of suspect that he took the role on, on, on becoming a God in central Florida, just to restore like his average words per title rate. (laughs) (laughs) And then there Mm -hmm. was a part where he, uh, he as Cody leads the fam crowd in chance of every night, every night, every night, and immediately flashed on the Patriots victory parade after they won the fifth Super Bowl, and bill Belichick getting people to chant no days off. No, like so people who are out there for a party celebrating like immediately like what if what if I did endless toil endless toil endless toil um and then just yeah. the uh the dead pigeon 
I don't know if you remember that. Like, I just really enjoyed that. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm compelled to continue watching it just because it, it obviously has so many good ideas, but I'm, I am, I'm also worried. So I'm glad, Jeb, that you've watched ahead and, and can assure me on some of the grossness that I'm afraid of. It's time to go around the dial for a stop, Tara Ariano. We watched the first episode of Why Women Kill, the new CBS All Access original series. I then went on and watched the second one, which Dave did not, because I had a pretty good sense he didn't care for the first one, and I didn't make him watch ahead. This is uh, created by Mark Cherry, who also created Desperate Housewives. Um, it's set in one Pasadena house over three timelines. So here's the breakdown. 1963. We've got Jennifer Goodwin and Sam Jager, I think that's how you say his name, from Parenthood. He is cheating on her with a diner waitress played by Sadie Calvano, who is bitchy Violet, the shitty daughter from Mom. Um, this couple had a daughter who died. And Beth Ann, the wife, is trying to do all the typical 1963 things to recapture her husband's interest while also befriending the mistress under false pretenses. Then we jump to 1984 where we get Lucy Liu and Jack Davenport. Her frenemy tips her off with a photo booth strip that her husband is gay. He manipulates her into a long timeline for divorce by faking a suicide attempt, which she discovers uh, that it's fake. Then she takes up with another frenemy's 18-year-old son. Cut to 2019. Our couple is Kirby Hal Baptiste from Everything Lately and Reed Scott. He is perfectly cast as a guy who would go to a women's march to objectify one of the speakers. She is less well cast as a person who is American. She's also bisexual. They have an open marriage. So she's been seeing a woman named Jade, who's played by Alexandra Daddario, who comes to stay with the couple uh, to get away from her aggressive male ex. But then Eli, the husband, Reed Scott, successfully gets both women to agree to a three-way that he instantly regrets when it seems like Taylor his wife, is not just fooling around with Jade, but is actually in love with her. And in terms of the title, all we know is that someone gets killed in the house in each timeline eventually. And it's established for each timeline that there are multiple possible victims. So am I in favor of women killing men? Yes, of course. Um, I also approve of any show that casts Kevin Daniels from Sirens, uh, who played Hank. Love him. He plays uh, Reed Scott's friend in that timeline. But I think the corny Mark Cherry-ness of it mm, uh, is going yeah. to accrue over time and keep me from committing to the show, particularly since the murders, in my opinion, should happen at the end of the season. This should be an anthology show. Uh, whereas, based on his comments at Press Tour, uh, this the idea is that the the murders will happen later in the series and then, you know, whatever. That's that's less compelling to me if you're like just waiting for maybe multiple years for someone to get killed and like just <laughs> is it going to be this person is it going to be that person? But I'm in for now mostly because as usual Reed Scott is giving like 150 percent in his performance as a handsome smarmy asshole. And Lucy Liu is also very good. She's uh, she's really funny. Um, but eh, I I as much as I was interested to keep watching it, I would not say that I unreservedly recommend it. It might be a good show to have on in the background because the design of it is amazing for all of the timelines. Like the the wardrobe is gorgeous. The the period touches that they the ways they change the house are fascinating. The eighty four one is all like Trump Tower black lacquer and gold and glass. <laughs> it's like very very classy. Um, but yeah, story wise, jury's out. We'll see. 
Um, for my plug, I have two things. One is the Dream Podcast, which I mentioned we were talking about um, on Becoming a God in Central Florida. This is Jane Marie's podcast. Uh, season one was all about multi-level marketing schemes, and I thought I knew a lot, but I learned a ton, so I strongly recommend it. It's very well-researched and really well done. For more self-interested reasons, we'll plug uh, the Succession podcast that I do with David Chen, The Sweet Smell of Succession, uh, episode four coming up this weekend. Uh, it is a wild one. <laughs> if you're watching the show, um, it, the season's really been tough to watch, too, for very different reasons than On Becoming a God in Central Florida is, but both are very good. So check those out. Sarah D. Bunting. I really only have myself to blame for sticking with 13 Reasons Why, which has a season three. There are like no reasons why that I can think of, um, <coughs> except that uh, I am a masochistic completist. Um, so I'm going to continue. There's also another reason for that, which I'll get to. Um, I think the only reason really is that most of the actors are really good. Um, Dylan Minnette, Justin Prentice, who plays uh, the villain uh is really great uh they almost sell this non-credible situation that they are continuing to be in uh this situation is basically that they uh, covered for a bullied kid who almost um did a school shooting um there's also this new character um ani who is like interesting in theory but in practice is written and performed annoyingly uh it doesn't make sense that she would become our virgil in this story instead of clay who's been doing it for two seasons um we can handle an unreliable narrator it's like the foundation object of narrative (laughs) in culture like just you know, unless Dylan Minnette was like, I don't want to keep doing the, uh, the voiceover all the time, but like he's in every scene anyway, practically. So anyway, uh, everyone is speculating about the season who done it in this weird, like sequential order where each episode is like a different, um, object of suspicion, which is like opponents in a Kung Fu fight scene where they just sort of line up in an orderly fashion (laughs) so that Jackie Chan can kick their asses. And then it's 57 minutes of like weird, um, time flipping and, um, aspect ratio changing to indicate what timeline you're in no adults ever notice their very obvious lies or absences or that the car smells like someone died in it because that usually happened that they're always taking bathroom breaks together maybe that's part of the point is that adults are oblivious and like teens have their own world that they have to navigate by themselves um even if we adults don't feel that's true um it's way past dramatic license at this point um as nice as it is to see uh my girl maria dizia working her character is like ridiculously clueless to the point where i'm a little angry on her behalf Mm. i am going to stick it out because i can tell you without even stopping to think about it that no show got a stronger reaction even via passing mention like i wasn't teaching this in my class last semester um the students felt extremely strongly about 13 reasons why uh not in a good way either oh that was my question that's I'm good to know sh- i'm sure they all have better things to do like they were angry at it and felt that it was uh like almost criminally irresponsible content mm. um mm-hmm. it was a very interesting discussion um 
so that's kind of why I'm I'm sure they'd all now have better things to do than mess around with this shit, but I am going to stick it out. Um I just I want these actors to like go do something else so that I can enjoy and support them in something that's less both irresponsible and treading water. Um mm-hmm. and this the point of this project in its initial iteration was not for it to morph into a murder mystery like that wasn't that wasn't the point yeah of it never mind with a new character who's annoying as hell speaking of annoying as hell for my (laughs) plug um i have teamed up with john ramos he's not the annoying part um on two things this week one is a my so-called life anniversary piece that we collaborated on for primetimer.com about uh patty chase as the secret heart of my so-called life uh please do add us if you agree or do not i'm at tomato nation on twitter and um it's a little go pirates reunion on the blotter presents as john and i are talking on my true crime podcast about uh gangster capitalism which is a podcast about the uh college admissions bribery scandal and about the bridge cheating scandal, not the Chris Christie one, like cards bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was uh, like, you know, uh, the talk of the bridge world in 2016. Uh, John knows like 80% of the principles in the articles that we talked about. So uh, that's at Blotter Presents across social media. Give it a download uh, wherever you find podcasts. That's it. Uh, Jeb, I went a little bit out of order. Now it's your turn. Sorry. You guys have already covered this in a previous episode, but I just wanted to tack on a note. Uh, I've been watching Pennyworth. It's one of the few things I've been watching where you guys haven't taken all the good takes. Um, (laughs) But uh, one of the things I've really enjoyed about it, like especially if you look at the episode naming, I think it almost has been kind of putting its finger on the button to emphasize it. Like the episodes as the season has worn on have been all like, what you'd think of as almost like exclusively British pop stars. They had some trans, you know, Atlantic saturation here, but it's, they're iconically British. And one of the things that's been interesting for me is like just a, you know, former history nerd and the cultural history nerd is seeing the way like austerity Britain is getting pulled through the lens of like the empire never dying and the way in which like that seems to affect entertainment because the entertainment in uh, this version of, of, of England is very much like for England, you know, it is, it's very England first. And Mm -hmm. just even outside of the plots, just the background has been so rich for that detail of like, let's look at what would happen if London had still been through the same privation that it did for the second world war, but it didn't give up on basically being a a menacing militaristic power. So, or imperial power, I should say. Uh, and then for my plug, I'm, I'm going to be selfish and plug my podcast, Dave and Jeb Aren't Mean. If you Ooh. like college admissions scandals for Lori Laughlin, <laughs> we watch Lori Laughlin movies. And uh, it, in fact, just a few episodes, episodes ago, uh, Sarah was on to see one of the, the last <laughs> Luke Perry movies, mm-hmm. which is and it was good and you were surprised and pleasantly so and you enjoyed it yeah so I did. Uh, and there was also a giant like 60 percent of the screen bug for one of the Lori laughlin franchise movies that i was like uh i don't think so <laughs> not any mill <laughs> 
Um, but also, uh, so our last week we did, uh, an episode, uh, on a movie from 2012 back before Hallmark sort of ossified its formula and it could be weird. And it was nominally about baseball. So we got a baseball writer on to talk about it. Her name is uh, Stacy Katsulius. She's has a podcast uh, on the Yankees and she's written like, you know, all the sabermetrics sort of blogs, but her first paid writing gig was edited by Sarah D. Bunting. Hey, because oh, was she it? was twice an extra on Dawson's Creek. Oh, wow. <laughs> I follow wow. her on Twitter. I had no idea about that connection. So there you go. So also, if you Delightful. want like uh, another plug, uh, she's going to be on talking about her experience on Dawson on our podcast bonus, which uh, you can go to patreon.com slash this week in atrocity. Name has nothing to do with the podcast. And <laughs> that's why we make the money we do. <laughs> <laughs> Today's extra credit topic is called Modern Primetime Cartooning. It comes to us from Dave Snyder, who writes, Remember back when they would take successful primetime shows and make Saturday morning cartoon versions of them? Like they'd take the castaways from Gilligan's Island and move them to an alien planet? Or they'd take the Happy Days gang and add a malfunctioning time machine and Fonzie's previously unseen dog, Mr. Cool? (laughs) Take a modern television show and describe the Saturday morning cartoon version of it, including a new outlandish or fantastical element like a time machine. And the name and species of the cast's new anthropomorphic animal sidekick. I will start. My show is the loudest voice. Sorry. This is the Showtime (laughs) series about Roger Ailes and Fox News. We all know that Fox News is a corrupt enterprise that was until recently run by a sexual predator tortured by dark conspiratorial fantasies. But wouldn't this horrendous true life story go down easier in 2D animation form? Stay with me. My animal sidekick, uh, in the animated version, Roger Ailes, voiced here by Jim Gaffigan, takes meetings with his trusty tuxedo cat, Gipper, voice of John Boyega, with a British accent. Here's the fantastical element. What Roger doesn't know about Gipper is that he's not an ordinary cat. He's been sent by an angel to try to keep Roger from indulging his worst impulses, like a furry Jiminy Cricket. Unfortunately for Gipper, Roger has no conscience or shame, so rather than helping steer Roger toward good choices, Gipper is continually foiled. Trying and failing to get between Roger and the female employees he preys on, trying to attack Roger to distract him from his assaults. (laughs) In the end, Gipper isn't even present in Palm Beach in the series finale when Roger dies and is denied the pleasure of eating his face, which is when we learn that Gipper is himself the reincarnation of a sexual predator and that the purpose of his time with Roger was to teach Gipper to respect women in his next life. Jeb. (laughs) Good Lord. Uh, You know, they say, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. And that's exactly what the cast of the West Wing kids gets. When CJ Craig finds a puppy named Fiat in her cubby at the White House. Everyone loves a dog, especially Leo McGarry, Josh Lyman, and Sam Seaborn. And that's why they use bipartisan love of dogs to deploy Fiat to break through deadlocks and find common ground. But that's not all. The staff of the West Wing Kids belong to a secret government organization called Political Responsibility Oversight and Constitutionalism Establishment Security Service, or PROCESS, that protects the United States when the system breaks down. Each member of the West Wing staff has his or her own tactically superior ability that can be used in a fight. Josh Lyman can vote for a president for a third term. 
Will Bailey has the ability to pretend to be Josh Molina on Twitter, and Sam Seaborn can have sex with 16-year-olds. But the bulk of their fighting force is led in the field by Fiat, who barks, whose barks can direct an android army of nanotechnologically organized robot minds, or norms. Only with the combined talents of the staff of the West Wing kids and Fiat can process come together against implacable forces and use norms to restore the safety and security of the Republic every damn week. Wow. Wow. I feel like there is a very good opportunity for the repeating hallway back panels that you <laughs> yes. get in Scooby-Doo yes. on this show. Cactus in the background. Yeah. yeah. Just full Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. yeah. Mm. All right, Sarah, what do you got? Welcome to Saturday morning's newest thrill ride, Handmaid's Babies. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do I have to continue? Not really, but I will. With help from June, Janine, and Jesus the Rhyming Scorpion, why, who cares, the kids of Gilead have adventures smuggling their friends across the Canadian border and learning lessons along the way about how sticky maple syrup is when it freezes. Unless Aunt Lydia finally stops those meddling kids by stealing Janine's magical eye patch. (laughs) That's as far as I got. And honestly, that's as far as it should go, Dave. All right. My show is The Office 2020 AD. Here's the setup. (laughs) When a strange comet passes by Earth, galactic energy is released over Scranton, Pennsylvania, deputizing the staff of Dunder Mifflin as the Time Force, Earth's first line of defense against ripples in time and history. With the help of the diminutive Orion Star Force liaison, Sergeant Gorglax, Kristen Chenowitz, Michael Scott, Jim, Dwight, Pam, and the rest of the staff must travel through time to fix history that's gone off the rails. Their time machine is a retrofitted forklift from the back office. Then they all have to like hang on to it in like a 70s road movie style poster sort of setup. Um, Each of the staff are given a galactic power to use in the past and present to help them correct history. Michael can turn into his alter ego from threat level midnight, but only for five minutes a day. Dwight can transform himself into a bear, a beat, or a Battlestar Galactica. Uh-huh. Jim and Pam combine to form a noxious gas. <laughs> Angela can turn things cold at will. Aaron can create bubbles at will. Kelly Kapoor is like the Ahura of the show. She stays back at the office to coordinate the mission. Her power, she is given the Orion Star Force MasterCard and buys team uniforms and plans welcome home parties. Yes. Every episode upon the return, <laughs> she starts her rendition of time after time. It gets cut off by the office stegosaurus that stowawayed on the forklift in episode two. <laughs> Oscar is a robot, but also can be an eagle. Meredith, when powered by special fruit drink, turns into sort of a Tasmanian devil whirling dervish style berserker. Daryl. He's in charge of the forklift time machine and also has a robo-visor with cool but useless tools like a boxing glove on a spring. (laughs) Stanley becomes a Stretch Armstrong ripoff named Pretzel Man. Toby can turn himself invisible and is sort of the Mr. Smith of the show, always sneaking Uh on board the forklift, much to Michael's displeasure. And finally, Creed gets a flamethrower. Each mission is a failure, and over the end credits, we get a taste of how the future was changed by the actions of Michael and company, and that is The Office 2020. Wow. Excellent work, everyone. 
the police are here. We are all being arrested. (laughs) AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now! I'm Garth Marenghi, author, dreamweaver, visionary, plus actor. You are about to enter the world of my imagination. You are entering my dark place. What is Garth Marenghi's dark place? How to describe a nearly flawless six-episode cult classic that changed the way we think about medical care and satanic forces turning you back into a primate. It is, put simply, the most significant televisual event since Quantum Leap. And I do not say that lightly. Dark Place is set in Dark Place Hospital, which is built on a literal gateway to hell. There, the twin callings of groundbreaking medicine and the eternal fight against the supernatural forces of darkness fall into the hands of Dr. Rick Daglas, M.D., a brilliant doctor, and, despite Britain's lack of official involvement in the conflict, a Vietnam veteran. Rick Daglas might be the world's greatest physician, but no man is an island, even though he could be if he wanted to. Daglas has friends, and he inspires a tireless devotion. When I first joined this hospital, I was strictly solo. You were the first real buddy I ever had. But if you and he wish to be best buddies again, I won't stand in your way. Who does that unnaturally deep voice belong to? It's none other than... Dr. Lucien Sanchez, hotshot surgeon. He's a good buddy, though we sometimes have punch-ups. Sanchez is not only the hospital's star surgeon, not only a fellow Vietnam War veteran, but also a man with flawless hair, a forty-five automatic in one hand, and another he keeps in an ankle holster in case you ponderin'. Rounding out the hospital staff is the occasionally telekinetic when PMSing Dr. Liz Asher. She's fresh-faced, but she's credentialed. I've just graduated from Harvard College, Yale. I aced every semester, and I got an A. They all report to Dark Place's administrator. Who might that be, you ask? Thornton Reed, my boss, head of the department, a bull buster. But then he had to answer to Wonton. 
Reed runs the hospital with an iron fist in his velvet glove, accidentally answers phones he's hung up, has trouble not looking directly at the camera, and wields a shotgun when the shit goes down. Together, they battle the supernatural while trying to keep people whole, facing down hellish threats like angry women who can control clothing irons with their minds or men who can give birth to a giant eyeball. But wait, there's more. We see the series as it broadcast in 2004, but it was originally produced and shelved by BBC Channel 4 in the early 1980s, when the network turned to horror master Marenghi to create the series. And he did, not only writing and directing, but starring as Dr. Rick Daglas himself. And hospital administrator Thornton Reed, he's played by none other than Marenghi's own book agent and co-producer, Dean Lerner. The time off shows. Analog audio warps. The scratchy 1980s film stock looks instantly dated. Like early episodes of Doctor Who, gravestones wave in the breeze, walls shudder when doors slam, and everything seems to have been filmed with the kind of cheapness particular to British TV prior to the 21st century. As if the director said, well... All of you are primarily stage actors. We've all rehearsed. We've only got one take to record this. Let's go. Some of those production errors were intentional, though. Set alongside the episodes from the original series are interviews with Marenghi and Lerner, where they comment on the process of creating each episode. For instance... There's a lot of slow motion. The episodes were running up to eight minutes under. The only way to stretch them out was with slow motion. But wait! There's (laughs) more! None of this is true. Garth Marenghi might play Rick Daglas, but Garth Marenghi is played by Matthew Holness. And while Dean Lerner plays Thornton Reed, Dean Lerner is actually portrayed by Richard Iowati of the cult hit The IT Crowd. And Dr. Lucien Sanchez might be played by actor Todd Rivers, but Todd Rivers is played by Matt Berry, lately seen in What We Do in the Shadows. As much as it is an absurd showcase of murdering a possessed man by braining him with a shovel or firing a revolver through his mom's shoulder to stop his reanimated corpse from escaping his coffin, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is also a loving tribute to two other things. The first, the baffling and indulgent mediocrity of even our most beloved horror maestros and the solipsistic mythology of the universes they build. Think Castle Rock if it were populated by people who were more obviously idiots. And the second the unintentional slapstick comedy of classic British TV cheapness. Garth Marenghi's Dark Place could have gotten no finer tribute than the fact that some British TV commentators thought it was real, and the Channel 4 production workshop accidentally worked to correct the continuity errors, warped audio, incompetent shots, and choppy editing that they had deservedly been known for, only to be told by Holness and Iowate that no, all of that was meant to be in there. They were right. All of that should be in there. I could say more, but I've said too much already. Thank you so much, Jeb. Wow. Uh, I had heard of this show. We had never watched it. Um, originally, Jeb was going to submit the second episode, but then when he found out that, as far as I knew, none of the three of us had seen it before, he went with the series premiere. And here's the thing about this show, and I said this to Dave after we watched it. We all love smart comedy. Smart comedy is great. Fleabag, wonderful show. Great. But there is... Such an important place in our culture for extremely stupid humor and <laughs> done by people who are very smart, which this clearly is. Oh, my God. What a delight. Oh, <laughs> so God. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's great. We watched all six episodes last night. It's uh, <laughs> it's so fun. So stupid. Um, the <laughs> All of the styling on Garth Marenghi is like... <laughs> Clearly so considered and perfect, like the leather blazer with the black shirt and the purple tie. It's like, of course, and the, you know, child molester glasses. All of it is amazing. <laughs> and um, the cheap and shitty look of it is obviously, 
you know, a huge part of it. It's hilarious to know that they did try to fix that because wow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you, uh, if you like this show, you definitely should check out, um, well, I'll leave it to Dave to say, but the one that it reminded me of the most, uh, recently is one that I talked about if, uh, last month, which is on Netflix. Frankenstein's monsters, monster Frankenstein, very similar, like shoddy production as part of the joke. But yeah, this was, this was, a, this was a delight. I'm so glad we got to see it. I have nothing to add to your presentation that was dead on. And, uh, we will definitely be seeking out the films next. Dave, do you want to go next or should sure, I go? Sure. I'll go next. Um, okay. first of all, Jeb, I am so impressed that you got through that whole submission live without flubbing once no ums no anything i really that's like the bar that i aspire to hit so i just want to say kudos for you um you know, I, I really i i like naturalism you know <laughs> the show tara was talking about that i instantly compared this to was look around you uh, more season oh, yeah. two for it. the time period um, but uh, certainly for its attention to detail um, warts and all the look around you product was that they were aping the theoretical product was obviously more polished than an episode of uh dark place but certainly it scratches the same itch which is as tara said smart creators doing dumb things and <laughs> this is really dumb like you're watching a show that is a retrospective on a show that doesn't actually exist like it's like it's a, one of those russian dolls it had a brief run in Peru. Yeah. <laughs> now, I feel bad for Jeb that we hadn't watched this beforehand because having watched the whole season, I understand like there's a fantastic, amazing escalation of absurdity as you go through the six episodes, especially <laughs> episode three with the eye, which yes. I just like my mouth dropped. I just kind of like, Looked over to Tara, just like shake my head with my hands and like, you know, what the hell would we just watch? (laughs) I laugh so hard. Um, Though I do appreciate that if you hadn't watched this, you really do have to start at the start. And the pilot is still great, Uh, even though the show sets the stakes and the stakes just get higher and higher as they go along. The first episode is fantastic. It is not one of those shows where the pilot or the first episode seems like it was 0.9 and the second episode is actually the 1.0 release. Uh, I don't get that here. I really enjoyed their take, I think, on the Airwolf theme of the original Dark Place (laughs) show. Um, I thought that was really good, especially where it changes gears and right at the end, there's just these ominous deep voices going, dark place, dark place. It's like, what the hell am I watching? Like immediately sets the tone. I'm like, okay, I'm going to like this. My problem why I hadn't watched this show previous to this, even though it's like totally up my alley, is my first and only uh, exposure to this show was a clip I was shown that was from I think the last episode where Sanchez Sanchez oh the mute the video yeah that's the does family. the video and it was just like out of context just that and I'm like well I've seen that before like within mm-hmm. that episode it's just like this piece of dumb throwaway that makes no sense aping the videos of a time it's something we've seen a lot so I hadn't seen that I was sort of like I kind of dismissed it, like I don't really watch it anymore I get it it's sort of like low effort but this show is high effort that looks like it was easily done which is no small feat and it was really funny so uh, great discovery and a fantastic submission thanks Sarah 
I agree. Um, the one that I also had in mind was In Search Of, which was like, yeah. these oh, yeah. graphics were like contemporary with that, except that In Search Of was like completely not joking. <laughs> um, I had to stop writing things down after a while because I was basically writing everything down. Um, like <laughs> the fact that, uh, that hospital administrator slash agent character is always expositing about his own exposition, <laughs> which he's like, uh, yeah, he was right. I'm just going to go over there and tell him that. Like, why? It's just a little <laughs> throwaway. But, um, I will confine myself to, um, telling you about four things that happened in quick succession. <clears throat> uh, first, they give a music credit on the show, and then it says, based on melodies originally whistled by Garth Marenghi. Um, then the lady comes around the corner, stops, and puts her hand out <laughs> like at whatever knee level at which time a pa's arm appears holding a cat and like clunks it into the hallway yeah. for her to <laughs> that is followed by a chiron on a black screen that is a quote from king lear and then the fourth and final things that i peed a little because i just could not it was just like a barrage of exactly perfect like pitch perfect stupid uh pretentious like just the way that they would the way that they would shoot everything like how the plinking piano was d drowning everything out when he's about to you know mercy shovel and <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile this guy has exploded with so many juicy sound effects and there's only <laughs> one teeny cosmetic maroon smudge on Daglas. Um one note on the King Lear thing that you didn't mention was it's King Lear and then it's page forty six. Page forty six. <laughs> <laughs> Like, of, of course it is. He also has some note about, uh, like, so many people who are too busy writing books to read them or whatever it is. Like, I mean, he's perfect. Um, and there, there's ways in which he's very Stephen King-ish, but there's ways in, also, in which he's also the people claiming to be actual vampires on the rebooted In Search Of. Yeah. Who just put a bunch of apostrophes in their given names. And anyway, <laughs> it was brilliant. The only reason, and as you know, one of my canon criteria is that I want to keep watching. The only reason I didn't is that I absolutely have to share this with my husband before continuing, <laughs> which I am going to do. But this was uh, delightful. Uh, it was worth um, releasing a small amount of urine on myself. <laughs> I regret nothing. Excellent presentation. And I think we should vote. Uh, Tari Ariana, what say you? I say yay. I'm also going to say yay. Sarah D. Bunting. Oh, yay. All right. Yay. <laughs> Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, Season 1, Episode 1, Once Upon a Beginning. You are hereby inducted into the extra hot great canon. Americans love a winner. Yup. And will not tolerate a loser. Nope. It is time for Winner and Loser of the Week. Sarah has a winner. I sure do. It's Netflix, which added a feature to make it easier to find new and upcoming releases. Thank you. Finally. Hooray. And got the rights to the Breaking Bad movie, El Camino, which drops October 11th, which is sooner than I think anyone was anticipating. So, yay them. Hmm. And loser? Indeed. Well, it's a tale of two networks today, people. <laughs> uh, ABC has really been on one. 
First, uh, <laughs> oh. they announced the cast for the next series season of Dancing with the Stars, which included the usual bunch of nobodies and Sean Spicer. And immediately there was a huge backlash about it from various other ABC personalities, including Tom Bergeron, who is the host of Dancing with the Stars. Uh, then Lara Spencer, one of the hosts of Good Morning America, had uh, had made fun of Prince George of England taking ballet lessons and had to walk that back when, among other people, she got called out for it by Gene Kelly's widow. <laughs> And finally, former Bachelor Crystals in 2017 caused a fatal car accident and then left the scene, and he has just received a two-year suspended sentence for that. So once again, Bachelor Nation covering itself in glory. Good job, everybody. Yeah, boo. Speaking about covering yourself in glory, do you know what time it is? (laughs) Glory time! Glory time! It is game time, and this is the sixth game time of the season. Season scores, Tara 3, Sarah 1, Valued Guess 1. Today we are playing Hallmark of Quality from Dan Casino, who earns himself an extra credit topic. Hallmark has made a niche for itself with gentle romances and holiday-themed content. But given how often their shows and movies go back to the same wells, you can guess at what's happening in the movies, even if you've never seen them. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing here. No. (laughs) To make things easier, it's all multiple choice. Okay. Bear in mind that plot elements and actors repeat constantly, and that is all very, very (laughs) Canadian. Also, to keep things fair, there are no questions about the wedding march. Oh, okay. That is fair. podcast. Note... That we are including programming from the Hallmark Channel and Hallmark Hall of Fame movies, many of which originally aired on CBS. Okay. That's the game. Steel Mill situation, please start. Thank you, Dave. I have three Steel Mills. End of situation. All right. Advantage for Tara there. Let's throw it to Picky to see who will be playing first. We will start with valued guest. All right. So, Mr. Hallmark, Jeb going first. This is going to be so embarrassing if I just blow it. <laughs> That's why we're playing Hallmark of Quality. Here. There's no blowing in Hallmark movies. Come on. It's fine. <laughs> True. All right. Question number one for Jeb. Here we go. I'll read you a little information and I will give you four choices. Catherine Bell from JAG has the secret in a series of movies and shows that have been going since 2008. The gig economy means that in addition to being a widowed bookshop owner, she is also A, reincarnation of Cupid, B, an angel, C, a witch, or D, C. the author of a best-selling series of romance novels. C. A witch is correct. For one point, right? One point. Sarah yeah. D. Bunting. Yeah. We all know that the Jesse Stone movie star Tom Selleck, but which of the following is not one of his co-stars in one of the nine films in the series. Oh, Christ. Carrie Russell as a black widow who tries to seduce Stone. Luke Perry as the Boston Ripper. Viola Davis as Officer Molly Crane. Stephen Baldwin as a bagman for the Boston Mafia. Oh, my God. Three of those are real? Holy shit. Jesus. Good luck, 
say A, Carrie Russell, B, Luke Perry, C, Viola Davis, D, Stephen Baldwin. Oh, my God. This is this is really tough. Uh, it could be any of them. I will also guess C, Viola Davis. Viola Davis was Officer Molly Crane. Carrie Russell was not a Black Widow. Oh, shit. Oh. I was actually going to guess that. And then I was like, that's so off base. It must be true. Fuck. <laughs> All right, Tara, here's your first. Okay. 2014's North Pole, about an overprotective mother who has to learn the meaning of Christmas, does not feature the talents of Dermot Mulroney as a widowed banker. Mm-hmm. That's A. B, Jill yeah. St. John as Mrs. Claus. C, Robert Wagner as Santa. Or D, Tiffany Thiessen as the mom. So who is not in North Pole? Dermot, 2014? Jill, Robert, Tiffany, 2014 is a year, yes. Dermot. Dermot is correct. Nice. Hey. He was not in huh. North Pole. All right, back to Jeb. Okay. In the so stereotypically Canadian When the Heart Calls, a high school teacher in the 19-teens, Alberta, wins the heart of rugged Jack Thornton, who is employed as... A, a coal miner. B, a fur trapper. C, a lumberjack. Or D, a mountie. All right, this is the one. It's when calls the heart. It's the one franchise I, we haven't had called to do any episodes of, but we should because like all the other people start migrating in it. Like Jack Wagner's in it a bunch. I'm gonna guess um, C, lumberjack. Mm. <clears throat> no, uh, Jack Thornton, mountie. Mm. The uh, most Canadian of those choices, I think. Didn't think it would be a cover character. Damn. <laughs> Sarah D. Bunting? At the end of the first season of When Calls the Heart, that town is renamed Hope Valley after A, a local coal miner strikes oil, saving the town. B, a local wins the mayoral election against the snooty incumbent, who's from Hamilton. Uh. C, a disaster in the coal mine kills a large portion of the town's population. Or D, their upstart hockey team bests the snooty local champions, who are, of course, from Hamilton. <laughs> so, to recap, they renamed Hope Valley after Coal Miner Strikes Oil. Mario Election goes against the snooty incumbent from Hamilton. Coal Mine Disaster kills a large portion of the town's population. Upstart hockey team beats Hamilton. Um, I'm going to go with Cold Mine Disaster. Correct. <laughs> nice. That's dark, Canada. Shit. Wow. <laughs> All right, Tara. Yeah. Home and Family is a talk show that airs for two hours in the morning on Hallmark. Who has not been a host at some point? Oh, boy. Dean Kane from Superman and, uh, I mean, from I'm Superman. I'm aware of who Dean Kane is. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Debbie Matanopoulos from Formerly sure. of the View. Yep. Game show host Chuck Woolery. Mm-hmm. Or Paige Davis, former host of Trading Spaces. Oh, I'm going to say Chuck Woolery is too radioactive even for Hallmark. He is no, not. Hallmark! Oh, my goodness. Your answer, Dean Kane. Oh, wow. Somehow. Has not been <laughs> too busy on billion dollar Bigfoot bounty. <laughs> No, he said he'd do a Hallmark movie if Andy Levy and I wrote one. For real. <laughs> like okay. Andy checked. Well, why are you here? So he's not above it. 
I, I know what what am I doing here now instead of that? Yeah, yeah. I understand. Great question. <laughs> Jeb. Cedar Cove, a Hallmark series that ran for three seasons in the 2010s, did not feature which of the following? Did not. Andy McDowell as a lovelorn judge. Bruce Boxliner, blind turt as a bed and breakfast owner. Radio host Delilah as the narrator. Singer Jewel as the owner of a local cafe. Wow. Uh, Annie, Bruce, Delilah, Jewel. Uh, I'm going to have to go with Delilah here. <laughs> Damn it! Oh. <laughs> Not present on Cedar Cove, Jewel as the owner oh, of the local cafe. I thought she was the only sure thing. She's right. subsequently been on the network. Like She has, I think, a detective thing now. Yeah. Like her own series. So I was like, it's, it can't be her. It's going to be Delilah. There's Jeb giving possibly important information for others to use against him <laughs> in the future. But, but, uh, <laughs> geez, I'm so demoralized. I can't even think of the strategy. Lots of game left, Look, Jeb. We're all tied up. It's fine. Sarah D. Bunting. Davy and Goliath, a claymation kids show produced by the Lutheran Church, started uh-huh. in 1961 and had new episodes aired as recently as 2004 on Hallmark. Which of the following does not feature into the plot of the 2004 holiday special? Davy's sweet snowboarding tricks. A Yeti attack. (laughs) The story of Hanukkah. A girl having to worry about Davy's feelings after beating him in a race. Snowboarding Yeti's Hanukkah. Davy's feelings. Yeti's. Correct. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Tara. Yeah. In 2018's Northern Lights of Christmas, a woman who's training to be a pilot has her life thrown off track when she finds the North Pole and Santa's workshop, inherits a reindeer ranch in Alaska, runs into a deer, runs into a reindeer while in a Cessna, witnesses a crime and has to stay in hiding with an attractive Mountie. I believe that Jeb has covered this on his podcast, and I think it's Reindeer Farm. Reindeer Farm? Correct. Hey. (laughs) Thank you, Jeb. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Jeb, in a series of westerns directed by Jason Priestley, Luke Perry stars as Bradley Hopeless, a haunted Civil War veteran who finds love. Cyril Loving, a Mountie bringing order to the Western provinces. Douglas Goodman, a widower who has to defend an Alberta town from bandits. Or John Goodnight, a lovelorn judge bringing order to the Western territories. Ooh, wow. So, Civil War vet, Mountie, widower, lovelorn judge. You know, I just love the words lovelorn judge. (laughs) So your answer is John Goodnight, a lovelorn judge, and you are correct. Yes. Wow. All right, Sarah. In 2013's The Hunters, Robbie Arnell plays a treasure hunter advised by Victor Garber. He has to stop a bad guy from misusing the Enchanted Rose from Beauty and the Beast, the Enchanted Spindle from Sleeping Beauty, the Evil Queen's Mirror from Snow White, the Glass Slipper from Cinderella. I believe it's Amel. Apologies to either Robbie Arnell or Robbie Amel. 
All right. So your choice is Enchanted Rose, Enchanted Spindle, Evil Mirror, Glass Slipper. I think it's Evil Mirror. You are correct. Well Evil done. Mirror. Our last question before the first score break is for Tara. Yep. In 2007's A Grandpa for Christmas, the grandpa <laughs> in question is Carl Reiner. Yep. Ernest Borgnine. Sure. Peter Falk. Yep. Jamie Farr. Borgnine. She says with authority, <laughs> and she is correct. Jamie Farr was, in fact, in the movie, but was not Grandpa. Okay. Scores, please. Tara Area. Such a close game. Sarah and I are tied with three apiece. Jeb has two. Hmm. All right. We're going to get right back into it. We're short on time today, so no equalizer challenge zones. We really, if Jeb wins, he's got to win on the merits of the Hallmark questions only. (laughs) We want to keep this pure. We don't want any asterisk next to a Jeb victory. Jeb, your next question. Hallmark's 2005 adaptation of Jewel Verne's Mysterious Island features a face-off between our hero, played by Kyle Chandler, and Captain Nemo, played by which Star Trek alum? Jonathan Frakes, Leonard Nimoy, Patrick Stewart, William Shatner. Who played Nemo? (sighs) Frakes, Nimoy, Stewart, Shat. Frakes. Get this. Slumming it on Hallmark, Patrick Stewart. No kidding. Yeah. Hmm. I would have guessed Frakes as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sarah, in 2018, how many new movies did Hallmark put out for the Christmas holiday? 15, 22, 37, 51. 37. (laughs) Such a quick answer, and it is correct. I just, I don't know why. I just oh my God. knew that. I don't <laughs> there, know. There are 37 days of Christmas, according to Hallmark. Yeah. Because God intended. Tara, 2005's yeah. Ordinary Miracles stars Jacqueline Smith as a baker who runs a bread and breakfast and thinks her sailor husband has died, mm-hmm. a lovelorn judge who connects with a young offender, <laughs> a mother who has to return to the big city of Hamilton, a widow on the Alberta frontier who connects with a young orphan. What's the title? Ordinary Miracle. So, Brett Baker. I'm going to say orphan. The last one. Orphan. Mm. Shit. A lovelorn judge who connects oh, with a young orphan. How many fucking offender. lovelorn judges are there? I'm telling you, lovelorn is hot right now. You got to write it. Oh. <sighs> All right, Jeb. Right. I think this is probably outside the mandate of your podcast. Oh, no. 2004's King Solomon's Minds, the fifth <laughs> film adaptation of the pulp novel of the same name, stars who as adventure Alan Quartermain, Jason Priestley, Luke Perry, Patrick Swayze, Stephen Baldwin. Who played Alan Quartermain? I mean, well, like Priestley should be too short for it. <laughs> well, he is a quarter. He's, he's yeah. not a full name. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Sarah would have mentioned for Luke Perry. So what were the other two options? Patrick Swayze, Stephen Baldwin. Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> Patrick Swayze. <laughs> oh, man. Swayze. Oh, Ellen Quartermain, also a character on General Hospital, which also starred Jack Wagner. It all comes hey. around. Wheels within wheels. Question 17. 
2006's Final Days on Planet Earth features Campbell Scott fighting an alien insect queen who's taken on the form of Angelica Houston, Sybil Shepard, Brooke Shields, or Daryl Hannah. Wow. Wowie wow. Which one was C again? Shields. Brooke Shields. 2006. I think it's Shieldsy. It is Daryl Hannah. Uh, my second wow. choice. <laughs> All right, Tara. <laughs> yep. 2009's Before You Say I Do centers on a wedding complicated by a lovelorn judge who falls for the groom. <laughs> A sudden bout of amnesia caused by a horse riding accident. Mm. A talking dog who's opposed to the marriage. (laughs) Time travel shenanigans. Oh, man. It could be B or D. I'm going to say B. B, a sudden bout of amnesia? Yes. Your answer, before you say I do, complicated by time travel shenanigans. Fuck. It was one or the other. The Lost Letter Mysteries center on a crack team of dead letter investigators who hunt down the intended recipients of missed address mail. It somehow ran for 21 movies between 2013 and 2018, but did not feature which of the following guest stars? Carol Burnett, Mary Lou Hanner, Martha Stewart, Valerie Bertinelli. Martha Stewart. Says with authority, and he is correct. What did you say the name of it was? The name was The Lost Letter Mysteries. Huh. Did, is that like we're using a Canadian search engine? Because it sounds like these, there's another series that has uh, signed, sealed, and delivered. Oh, could be the and same it's the series. same premise. They're so like a dead letter office investigators. Weird. Anyway. Bear in Manitoba. Competing series is a spinoff, yeah. It's like CSI <laughs> Vegas and CSI New York. They're just like yeah, You're asking me questions about Chicago Hope. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Saturday Bunting, between 2005 and 2008, John Larroquette starred in 10 McBride mystery movies as okay. a former LAPD cop turned lawyer. What character note did Larroquette insist on? A co-star role for his actual daughter as an LAPD cop. McBride must win all hand-to-hand fights. <laughs> McBride's first name can never be mentioned or alluded to. Technology can be used in the movies, but it has to be McBride's old-fashioned know-how that solves the crimes. So much believable actor bullshit. Well done, yep. Dan Casino. D. Technology can be used in the movies, but it has to be his old-fashioned know-how is incorrect. McBride's first name can never be mentioned. Oh, or that was my second like choice. It <sighs> really informs the character. All right, Tara, 2005. <laughs> yeah. Hallmark Movies won all three television awards at which award show you most certainly have never heard of? <laughs> the Cammies, that's the Character and Morality and Entertainment Awards. <laughs> the Evangelical Lutheran Media Honors, 
the Love Waits Awards, honoring media that champions waiting for marriage before oh, consummating man. a relationship. Sure. Or the Visit Canada Awards, awarded to the program that best portrays Canada and Canadian values. So you got the Cammies. Yeah. The Evangelical Lutheran Media Honors. Yeah. Love Waits Awards. The Visit yep. Canada Awards. Cammies. Correct. That's the nice. real one. This is for Jeb. 2003's A Carol Christmas has Tori Spelling as a Scrooge-like talk show host who's shown the error of her ways. Who is not one of the ghosts? Chuck Woolery, Gary Coleman, James Cromwell, William Shatner. Three of those were ghosts. Who wasn't? Wow. Shatner. Shatner was, in fact, the ghost of Christmas present. Damn. Gary Coleman, the ghost of Christmas past. James Cromwell, <laughs> the ghost of Christmas future, leaving out what? Chuck Woolery. Woolery. Oh my God. You're not too good for this shit. Come on. <laughs> he, was on the, he was on the show, the morning show. I mean, what? Jeez. Sarah. Itch. Yes. Of course, A Carol Christmas should be confused with 2012's It's Christmas, Carol, in which a <laughs> woman is visited by the ghost of her deceased boss, played by a slumming Carrie Fisher, Joan Rivers, Laura Linney, Michelle Pfeiffer. What year was this again? 2012. It's Christmas, Carol. <laughs> No, money down. <laughs> uh, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer, incorrect. It was Carrie Fisher. Damn the it. The role that she will be remembered for is Christmas Carol. <laughs> All right, here's our last question for our second score break, getting towards the end of the game for Tara. In yeah. 2004's Wedding Days, with a Z, of course. Oh. Of course. <laughs> John Larroquette plays a father who's worried about the mounting expenses of his daughter's wedding. But he should have plenty of money as he has a great romantic comedy job as an architecture critic, a traveling hotel reviewer, (laughs) the editor of a series of books profiling charming inns of the Northeast, the head of a company that comes up with names for companies. These are all so good. Dan, yes. you are really Mr. Colleague as a college professor. Um, I'm going to say hotel reviewer. Hotel reviewer. Incorrect. Mm, John Larquette played the head of a company that comes up with names for other companies. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Wow. All right. That brings this us to amazing. our score break. Tara. Okay. Well, scores, Still very close, not very different from last time. Now Sarah and I are tied with four each, and Jeb has three. All right. It's still anybody's game. Everybody has two questions left. (gasps) So make them count. First one is for Jeb. 2005's Supernova is a disaster (laughs) movie about the sun getting hotter, starring Luke Perry, who also, in the movie, has to fight a convict that's hunting down his family. Naturally, <laughs> nothing super about that. Can we have a special on this movie on again with this? Maybe as a oh my a god, bonus yes. All right, to finish that, please. Clue, 
Who of the following was not part of the large ensemble cast alongside Perry? Chloe Grace Moritz, Lance Hendrickson, Peter Fonda, Tia Carreri. Wow. Chloe Grace Moretz. You are correct. Nice. Sarah D. Bunting. The Fixer Upper Mysteries, a series of Hallmark movies from 2017 and 2018, focus on a woman in a small town who renovates beautiful old houses and gets mixed up in murders associated with the renovations. <laughs> if that's not enough, she also seems to own a bread and breakfast. Our multi-talented heroine is played by Jewel, Kelly Clarkson, Tori Spelling, Valerie Bertinelli. Uh, well, it's always tempting in these situations to go Bertinelli, but I suspect that Jewel is the correct answer here. You are correct. Thanks, Jeff. Right. Yeah, I feel <laughs> chastened. That's fine. Putting pressure on Tara. <laughs> Brooke Shields plays a high-powered eternity that <laughs> suit to be love lord judge yep brooke shields plays a high-powered attorney turned a small town florist of course who solves <laughs> mysteries in the yep. flower shop mysteries yes which is not one of the terrible puns used as a title mm -hmm. dearly depotted oh. mums the word mm-hmm Senseless violets <laughs> snipped in the bud. Senseless violets. Oh, you are correct. Yes. Casino. Too clever. <laughs> I've called the police. All right, Jeb, your last question yep. coming at you. Yep. 2009's Expecting a Miracle has a struggling couple played by Terry Polo and Jason Priestley deciding to stay together after... Checking checking into a haunted bread and breakfast run by Shelley Long, who turns out to be a ghost. Experiencing the yes. kindness of a Mexican village led by Cheech Marin as a priest. Oh, no. Uh, okay, yeah. Helping Santa Claus play by Fred Willard to find his naughty and nice list. Mm -hmm. A lovelorn judge orders them to stay locked in their house together for the whole month of December. Just, I, I want you to picture me taking an enormous pile of like of poker chips, which obviously I wouldn't have earned because I'm not doing well. But just imagine it's much bigger and just pushing it all in on Lovelorn Judge. Sorry. Oh! <laughs> as much as I would like that to happen for you, I'm it is in so fact. Me yeah. too. That would have been a great twist. Cheech Marin as a priest experiencing oh, kindness sorry. of a Mexican village. That wouldn't have. That might have been my third. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten there. No matter what. Bruno. Sarah D. Bunting in 2013's Fur Crazy F I R. <laughs> a woman running a Christmas tree stand in New York and certainly not Vancouver is destined to be with a school teacher. You can tell because he does all of the following except asks her out repeatedly, even after she says she's not interested. Goes into a rage when she has an innocent conversation with her ex. Flies in order to get access to her apartment uninvited while she's sleeping. Stalks her at her place of work. Sounds cheery. Yeah. He does all of those but one. 
I don't. Um, well, it's not that hard to stalk her at her place of work. Um, I'm going to say he does not fly into a rage. Oh, he does. He gets real mad. What he doesn't do is lie in order to get access to her apartment uh, while she's sleeping. Does not do that. Okay. Take it home, Tara. Quickly get the scores. I've lost track of where we are. Okay. Jeb has four. Sarah has five. I have five. Pending a last question. Are you expecting a miracle, Tara? I, I, I mean, a lovelorn judge could do anything at this point. <laughs> I would love to tell you that there is a lovelorn judge clue or answer in this, but there is not. Listen up. 2008's final approach is really trying hard to be diehard on a plane. Instead, it's three hours long and features the dubious talents of all but one of the following. Disgrace FBI agent Dean Kane. A strange wife in peril, Leah Thompson. FBI agent who's actually working for the bad guys, Kevin Sorbo. Terrorist mastermind, Anthony Michael Hall. Which one of those is not in final approach? Dean Kane, Leah Thompson, Kevin yeah. Sorbo, Anthony Michael Hall. That's a tough one. Hall! Incorrect. He was in that. Who wasn't? Kevin Sorbo as a double-crossing FBI agent. God damn it. The Sorb. The bow. Not in it. All right, that means we have a tie. We do. That means we have to go to a tiebreaker. Jeb, take a knee. Get yourself a nice beverage. Tara, Sarah, listen up. I'm going to read the whole clue. Answer after I've read the whole thing. Okay, understood. Gotcha. Here we go. Which of the following is not a hallmark romance with a dog theme? (laughs) Love at first bark, in which a woman falls for her dog trainer. Unleashing Mr. Darcy, a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, in which Darcy is the judge at a dog show. (laughs) Love Lorne. Love Lorne. (laughs) (laughs) Puppy Love in which a single mom adopts a dog from a shelter only to fall for the dog's actual owner. Or finally, who's a good boy in which career woman breaks off her engagement when she falls for her kind dog walker? D. Correct. Sarah takes Sarah! it with a quick answer. Sarah. 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 done. Pulls <laughs> it out at the end. Oh, God. I'm exhausted, but <laughs> Jeb, thoughts on our Hallmark game time? Oh, like I, it's given me renewed energy to recommit myself to this universe that apparently is much worse than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's like discovering you're watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe and somebody tells you that the terrible Incredible Hulk movie was actually part of that series. You're like, no, <laughs> then you have to go back and watch it. All right, guys, that is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. We sold you on the new Showtime series on becoming a god in Central Florida. Now it's your turn to sell it down line. Soon you'll be swimming in on becoming a god in Central Florida's. We went around the dial with stops at Why Women Kill, Pennyworth, 13 Reasons Why, and we gave you an extra credit glimpse at our Saturday morningization of successful primetime shows. Jeb took us the beginning of the dark place for the canon we crowned winners and losers of the week and sarah was the winner of this week's hallmark game time 
Remember. We're listening. <laughs> I am David T. Cole, and on behalf of Tara Ariano. See you at Harvard College, Yale. Sarah D. Bunting. Just make sure your methods are orthodox. And Jeb Lund. I'm going to whack a Brillo around this mug before it stains. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time right here on Extra Hot Great. I do not believe that any form of life, be it human, animal or plant, should be hurt in the making of a television program. So I personally feel very bad about the cat we killed. Ha, 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 